0: Going to be heading as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. And where we're going to be picking up is in verse 24 today. But as you guys are making your way uh, in your Bibles, or if you're uh, children of technology on your Satan song or your idle phone, you can pull those out. I won't think you're texting people during church. I'll assume you're looking at your Bible because I'm certain that's what you're doing. Uh, But needless to say, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. And the spot that we're in is known as the Parabolic Discourse. And so as I've shared with you, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. His gospel is written to the religious people, those Jews that were looking for the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. So what you find in the Gospel of Matthew are actually five different discourses. We've already covered two of those as we've journeyed through the text. We're now on the third, and it's in chapter 13. It's the Parabolic Discourse. Jesus teaching the kingdom in parables. Now what's interesting about this is you can actually line the five discourses in Matthew up with the five books of Moses. So if you think about a Jewish believer, what do they venerate the most? What do they hold on to the most? It's their law, right? The the, the law of Moses. And so what Matthew intentionally does is lines up each one of these discourses with a different book of Moses, the one we're at today, it ties in with Leviticus. Now, I know you guys love Leviticus. When you get into the Old Testament, you probably think to yourself, give me more Leviticus, more sacrifices. We want to know all about this. And yet, in that book, what we find is there's a theme, and it's this Be holy, for I am holy. That's the theme of the book of Leviticus. It's all about sanctification, it's all about set apartness. And then we come to the parabolic discourse, which is all about sanctification, set-apartness, how to live in a world that's fallen but yet still be set apart. And so you see the ties and the parallels with what we're going to be looking at uh, today and where we uh, covered last week as well. Now, a parable, I shared with you, the definition is it's simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's actually the combination of two Greek words, uh, the first word para, which just means alongside, and the second word, bole, which means to cast. So when Jesus is teaching in parables, what he's essentially doing is taking a heavenly concept, something that's difficult for people to wrap their minds around, and he's casting an earthly story alongside it to help explain things. And it's always for one central main idea. Lots of times, especially for preachers, because not that a preacher would ever embellish, but lots of times, we'll try to dig and cut through multiple different possibilities and scenarios, and the reality is about the parables is they were meant to be simple. They were meant to be easy to understand, and Jesus is intentional about the way he teaches. In fact, today, he's going to hit the same theme over and over again to try to drive home a point. Now, as I referenced, the book of Leviticus ties together with the parabolic discourse. And, and if you've gone through that book, you know it's, it's actually written for the priests. And, and the reality is, when we read it, we think, well, I'm not a priest, so therefore, why do I have to care about any of these things regarding the priesthood and sanctification and set-apartness? Um, but the fact of the matter is, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, uh, you are. And so before we start this morning, I'm going to go there and read exactly what I mean in reference to this idea of being set-apart. And from Jesus Christ, verse 5, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. So, probably this week, I'm just guessing. There were lots of times you didn't feel like a king, and you probably didn't feel like a priest. But the reality is. That's exactly what God said. That's not what you say. You don't get to say that about you. He gets to define that. And if you look at those verse, that verse right there, you notice who's actually doing all the work to make that happen. Um, you don't see your name actually mentioned in there. It's his life that was laid down. It's his blood that was shed. And it's for you and me. It's a gift. So, this is where we are going to be at today. But, uh, The kingdom of heaven is the final thing I wanted to point out by way of introduction. Jesus is going to several times mention the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you recall back from Matthew 4, he starts his preaching career by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there are other places in the New Testament where you'll see this term, the kingdom of God. And lots of times, at least for me, I thought those two were interchangeable. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, it's all his kingdom. But I just want to to share with you a thought before we go into this uh, that you may want to hold on to. I believe there are two distinct things. That the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about is actually the age of the church that's ushered in by his first coming. That as he describes the kingdom of heaven and lays it out, what we're going to find today is there are both uh, true believers in the kingdom of heaven and false believers. And yet when you go through the New Testament and you see the kingdom of God mentioned, you see not a mention of a false believer. So as we go through this, keep that in mind. He's describing the church age, the birth and the raising up of the church. So let's begin with the parable of the wheat and the tares in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, when the, uh, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then, does the, how then does it have tares? And he said to them, The enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them let both grow together until the harvest and at that time the harvest i will say to the reapers first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them but gather the wheat into my barn and so jesus begins once again giving them an agricultural parable he he did this because this area of northern israel was known as an agrarian society he's giving them stories that make sense to them in their daily lives We can probably relate here in central Illinois. We know a thing or two about agriculture. Even if we're not involved in it, we see it everywhere we turn, especially every summer. So he gives them a story that they can understand, a simple parable. And in the story, uh, as he's sown good seed, the man has, he refers to the enemy that's come along and sown uh, tares. Now the tares, uh, Bible scholars believe, are actually a weed called the Darnell weed. And the thing that's interesting about the Darnell weed is it looks exactly like wheat. You can't tell any difference. In fact, on the the picture on the right-hand side, I've got an example of what a field looks like with both wheat and Darnell weed in them. And I would challenge you to tell the difference between. So they look exactly alike, and yet the difference between the wheat and the Darnell weed is the weed does not produce fruit. There is no grain that comes forth from the weed. So the enemy's attempts here are actually to ruin the crop. That's essentially what he's hoping to do. By going in and scattering these weeds in amongst the good crop, he's hoping to ruin it all. Now the workers come to the man and they say to him, would you like us to go in and remove the Darnell weeds out of your good crop that we know you planted? And what does the master say? He says, no, I don't want you to remove it because he's far more concerned about the wheat than he is Darnell. He's far more concerned about the crop at hand. Now, we're going to get into the explanation of this here in just a little bit, but as we go, Jesus is going to continue on this theme with the next parable. Verse 31, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so his second parable, which is tied to the first, he talks about a mustard seed, and this is what he likens the kingdom of heaven to. Now the mustard seed is interesting. I put a picture of it up here on the screen for you because it is exceedingly small. Uh, That's it on the tip of that man's finger right there. Now Jesus used uh, the mustard seed in other examples specifically regarding our faith. If we just had the faith of a mustard seed we could tell this mountain to be thrown into the sea and it would. And so here again he's going to use the mustard seed to emphasize uh, its size. But what we find is this mustard seed when it's planted it actually grows into a great tree. And, And that's sort of fascinating because mustard seeds don't grow into trees. (laughs) They actually grow into small little bushes, and and they look like shrubs, actually. And so what we find is this mustard seed, there's actually something different about it. It's not normal. It's much larger. It grows bigger than anyone could imagine. And then he mentions the birds of the air. I shared with you last time when we looked at the uh, parable of the of the uh, seed and the sower, that there are certain Bible constants that you can apply to these parables, that the seed is always the word of God. And I mentioned uh, birds. Birds in the Bible are always, with only maybe an exception or two, uh, dirty birds. They're evil. They're angry birds. They're bad. And so what we find is Jesus sharing this parable, he's actually saying this tree which shouldn't have been a tree at all. It just should have been a bush. It's going to grow up larger than anyone could have imagined. And then guess what? There's going to be uh, evil ones lodge in its branches. Dirty birds are going to come in and try to infiltrate this tree. And so the, the interpretation of this parable is Jesus is talking specifically about the church. That the seed, remember the seed is always the word of God. The word is built upon him. Upon Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's planted there, and then what happens is out of this small word of God. Remember, this is a Jewish man born to a family with no money that's an itinerant carpenter. He's homeless, essentially, and yet from this one man, God in the flesh, grows up this amazing tree, one that no one would even believe. I mean, to this day, there's you know a billion people or more that consider themselves Christians, on this planet. I mean, No one saw that coming 2,000 years ago, I assure you. So much larger than anyone could have imagined. And yet, it has both true and false believers in it. Evil ones have come in and lodged in its branches. And by Jesus sharing this, I want you to know, um, he's not shocked by that. <laughs> he told them this before the church was ever actually even born, that this was going to happen. Only God could make a prediction like that. And so looking out into the future, we get all upset about true believers and false believers, and how do they get into the church? Well, the reality is Jesus knew that. We'll get into more of that in just a few minutes. Now, the next parable likens then to this parable as well, as he shares the parable of leaven. Another parable he spoke in verse 33 to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, when we open in the introduction, I told you this gospel was written to Jewish believers. And the Jewish believers would have been tracking at this point. All right, we're following you. The wheat and the tares, we got that. We understand agriculture. Okay, the mustard seed, we get that. Boy, that's a big tree. We've never seen anything like that. But they're still tracking. Now, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is likened to Leaven? They're going to look up and stand at attention. We don't quite get that because our heritage isn't their heritage. But what they knew is leaven in the Bible, in God's word, is always a picture of sin. Leaven is a picture of sin. This would have shocked them. It would have taken them aback. It did not match up to their expectations. So the first question I would pose to you today is, has God ever not matched up to your expectations. Where you had so decided what he was going to do and how he was going to do it, you probably even told him how you'd like it to be done. And yet he doesn't have to operate on your or my expectations, not in any way. Because the reality is he has something much bigger in mind. Now, the reason that they were so opposed to leaven, actually comes from Exodus chapter 12. So as Moses was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, God gives him the command of Passover, tells him exactly what to do, so their families would be spared. They were to, to sacrifice a Passover lamb, put the blood over their doorpost, and when they do that, the angel of death would actually pass over them. Their house would be saved. That's where the term Passover came from. But they were also told to take bread for their journey without leaven. The idea is they were to remove the sin from their household. They had been integrated with the Egyptian people. The leaven of the Egyptians had entered their household, and they were told to remove it. Get it out. Get it away from you. And so here he explains to these people, get the leaven out of your camp. And yet Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven. And he is addressing a specific group of people. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, What he says there is, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. When he says that, he's talking to this same group of people that he's preaching this parable to. These rule followers, legalistic, religious people, and he's now saying, there's a leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the sin of the Pharisees. And what is that sin? It's legalism. It's rule-following. It's putting, keeping track of a list ahead of actually taking care of people and caring for others and having grace and mercy. What does Jesus tell them? Go and learn this, learn mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so he calls what the Pharisees do, leaven. Now, we're all feeling pretty good about that because uh, we're not Pharisees. I'm guessing there's none of us in here that believes to be a Pharisee. And yet, When we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul grabs on to that same idea, and he says this in verse 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul writes that to the Corinthian church. Their issue was not rule following. It wasn't legalism. Their issue was liberty and all the the avenues they would take with liberty. They were willing to let anybody come in and just let it rip. There was no holiness, no sanctification. Uh, There was no following. Any kind of moral standards. And so because of that, what Paul says is remove the leaven in your life because you are a new lump. Aren't you guys happy you came to church today? You are all new lumps. Welcome, Lumpy, to church. Sorry, you got to have a little bit of levity here. So what we find is in these two scriptures, both items are addressed, both legalism and Liberty that the reality of these two is this. We hope people come as they are. That's exactly what we're here for. We we want the kingdom of heaven to look like people who come in here, whatever spot you're in, however you are, come on in, have a seat. Just don't leave as you were. Let the word of God soak in, let it change you from the inside out. That's exactly what we hope to do. And the right approach, the best approach is this. It's a combination of truth and love. Uh, John MacArthur said it way better than me because he's way smarter than me. But he said, truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. So both of these are what Jesus addressed with the Pharisees. They had all the truth out there. They They could lay people straight when they walked in the doors of their church, but it felt like brutality when people walked in. And so folks didn't follow God. They would just walk away. This is too hard. And yet, the Corinthians, they had, um, they had a little too much liberty. They had what we call hypocrisy. They were not willing to share truth with anyone. They were willing to love everyone, but give them no truth. And so the reality is, uh, they never changed. There was never any movement. There was never any cleaning up, cleansing of any sin whatsoever, because it was hypocrisy. And so the The way we should be as a church, the way we hope to be, is approach people in both love and truth, the way Christ did. If you look at how he interacted, how did he handle the Pharisees? I mean, he came down on them. He was not short to take up an issue with them. Why? Because they were legalists. And he wanted to address their issues of legalism and snap them out of it. And yet when people were in sin, how did he address it? It was with mercy. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. What's he do? He he says, where are your accusers, woman? It's all the accusers left. They were not willing to, to convict her when Jesus said, whoever's without sin, you throw the first stone. They all left and walked away. But Jesus didn't leave her like that when he said, woman, neither do I convict you. He said, go and sin no more. He shared truth with her in love. After he was merciful, he was then Truthful and straightforward. And so here we have the kingdom of heaven, once again, in this parable of leaven, but notice the woman takes the leaven and she hides it in three measures of meal until it is all, uh, until it is all leavened. Now for us, we don't know how big that is. I'm guessing most of you don't have a cup that just says "measure on it." And I asked my wife, and she told me a pint's a pound the world around. I have no idea what that means when it comes to a measure of flour. So I did what you all do. I asked Google. Google, how much is in a measure? And what I found out was three measures is about enough to feed 120 people bread. It's a big lump of bread. You can feed a lot of people. This is not just taking two loaves of sourdough to your neighbor lady. I mean, there's going to be a whole lot of bread. And what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is going to grow exceedingly large. There are going to be many options. And for lots to come in it's going to be the bread of life. It's going to be the very thing that sustains people and carries them through that they can rely on and trust upon. But at the same time, there's going to be corruption. There's going to be fermentation. What does leaven do? It ferments. It breaks down. It degrades. It erodes. And so he's trying to make us aware so that we wouldn't be shocked by this. Now then, the next verse, verse 34 we're going to take a little step back and look at the reason for parables. Verse 34, In all these things, Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled. Remember in our journey through Matthew, we said the key word in this book is fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things that things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And so when we look again in the middle of parables, what is the point of the parables, right? If you've ever scratched your head and thought that you're not alone, the parables are three things that I wanted to share with you. First of all, they're here to teach truth to those wanting to hear. To these common everyday people, they didn't have access maybe to the Word of God or to the to to the legalists that are wondering what's wrong with their legalistic hearts. It's to convey truth to those who are willing and wanting to hear the word of God, to feast upon it. And yet secondly, it's here to hide truth from the hard-hearted, from those people that really weren't seeking any kind of answers from Jesus. They were just only looking at some way to condemn him. And so the the second reason is to hide truth from the hard-hearted. I love what Solomon writes in Proverbs 26. I'll go back there for you. Uh, 26 verse 9. He says, Like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. This is these parables in the mouths of fools. They make no sense whatsoever. So as Jesus is sharing, these uh, men who previously had heard the word very directly, he he was not bashful about sharing the word of God up until he begins to teach him parables. And now for these men, they could no longer understand the truth because of their own hard hearts. And then finally, thirdly, what we see is it's here to fulfill prophecy. The prophecy spoken, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's actually a direct quote from Psalm chapter 78, verse 2. But as Jesus fulfills prophecy, what he's also doing is he's revealing God's plan. He's unfolding what was already hidden in their Old Testament text. You probably heard me say it before, that the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. And what he's really doing is taking these Old Testament truths, the things that were already there, but they were hidden. They they were in spots that they, they couldn't possibly understand, but at his first coming, he begins to reveal himself. And his revelation is something that's happens and continues to happen. We continue to get additional revelation. It's progressive. It's not one time for all. He continues to open up the word of God. Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 3. I'll go there with you quickly in verse 1. And he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have written already by which you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. The reason for these parables, the reason for prophecy, is so that the the real truth, the mysteries of God, could actually be given to us, to you and to I. These are not mysteries that were meant to never be solved. These are mysteries that God intended for us to know. And so the reality here is uh, for the church, for the church at hand, is that we were meant, Paul addresses the Gentiles there in Ephesians chapter 3. He's talking about them coming into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What the church was meant to be is attractive, It was meant to actually bring people in the same way the Jewish people that Matthew's writing to, they were meant to be set apart, not so that they could be an exclusive club that kept everybody out, but instead to be a light, to be inclusive, to bring people in and then show them the ways of God so that they too could be saved. So here we have this beautiful words written in Psalm 78, and these were written by the sons of Asaph. The sons of Asaph were actually King David's worship team. So here's King David's worship team, and they're trying to write another contemporary Christian hit. And they're writing out this Psalm 78 that would be sung in temples and in services. And, And as they write this out, I wonder, just thinking about it this week, do you think they knew this was prophecy? Do you think they actually knew that their words were prophetic? Because if you notice where we read here, Matthew didn't write that the sons of Asaph wrote this. He wrote, these were spoken by the prophet, saying that these men were actually speaking prophecy of the Messiah who was to come. And I write that, and I've been thinking about that, because do you realize our words matter? The words that we use, the way we speak to one another, the way we don't speak to one another, it matters. It matters. And beyond all that, our testimony matters. The way we communicate to the people around us. That as a church, we are called to be set apart, to be attractive, and understanding that it should never surprise us that the world acts like the world acts. They're only acting like the world. We should be more surprised that they don't act that way, frankly. And so the idea here is, when you hear the F-bomb outside your office when you hear about the happy hour party, when you're invited to go to things that you don't really necessarily want to go to or be a part of because you're trying to change your life, instead of being horribly offended by it, instead of cringing, even if you cringe a little bit on the inside, let it challenge you. Challenge you to be watchful over your words and then also, how do you share? How do you get involved in their life? They're telling you what's going on just by the way they speak. They're showing you that things aren't all right by the way they act. How do you choose to get involved in their life? Because the reality is our words matter. Sometimes the words we use, and sometimes the words we don't use. So powerful are our words that I'm going to go with you one more spot to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they, being the church, overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Your words, your testimony, God's work in your life, his story that he's worked out in your life is the very thing that overcomes the enemy when it's combined with the perfect blood of Jesus. When he washes you, and he cleanses you, and he's working on your heart, that's the thing that he uses to actually affect other people in their lives. And when you don't wanna share it, and you're unwilling to share it, and it's too hard, the truth is, they miss out. Of all the things I've shared here at church, I'd like to believe they've all been profound, and everybody's enjoyed all of it, but the truth is, When I shared my testimony, it got eight times more hits as a normal Sunday message because it was the very words of life. It was God's story in my life, how he worked things out in me, and people connect with that. And so do not be afraid to share that. Are you going to be convinced by the enemy that my words aren't good enough, that I don't have enough to say, that this couldn't possibly be prophetic in someone's life? Well, yeah, guess what? The sons of Asaph felt that way too. They wrote this a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. They had no idea they were writing about the Messiah. But their words mattered. So the next time you feel inadequate, unable to share, like maybe your words aren't important enough, I want you to be encouraged by this, that I am not what I want to be, but I'm sure not who I was. That's God working things out in your life as he... Shows you the leaven, those things that you need to push out and press out in your life to work that out. Now, then, finally, as we conclude, Jesus is going to be approached by his disciples and they're going to ask him to explain the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 36. And then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. That's the wheat. And the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And then verse 40, Therefore as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom and all, all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And then verse 42, And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. And he who has ears, let him hear. And so what we see is this simple parable explained by Jesus. And what he is saying, the main point of this that he's trying to convey is that uh, the Lord is going to judge both false and true believers at the end of the age. That's the singular story we are to take from this, that both true and false believers will be judged. But now we have to ask ourselves a few questions. And so we're going to go through this Uh, some, some bullet points, and it starts with this. One, there are both true and false believers in church. It's just the reality. Jesus has said it over and over again to try to help us to understand that there are both true and false believers. Now, the first question is, Lord, why would you leave them there? Why would you let true believers have to sit next to false believers? Why wouldn't you just remove them, Lord? Get them out of here. What he says in the parable is, I don't want the good ones to be damaged. And so the grace that's in this is that he is far less concerned about those sinful ones and the false ones as he is about your growth and my growth. He doesn't tear them out of the church because the reality is when people get taken out of church, and if you've been a part of a church any length of time at all, you've probably seen this happen. What happens every time? Somebody gets hurt. Somebody gets damaged. It was a good one. That wasn't meant to be hurt. It wasn't what the church probably even intended. They probably had the best of intentions when it came to removing that person. And yet good people still got injured along the way. And so what Jesus says in this parable is, I want the wheat to prosper. We look at it as it's some kind of awful thing. Why, God? And we shake our fist. And he's saying, This is why. My grace is why. Because I'm merciful. That's why. The second thing I wanted to point out is that it's God's job to judge, it's God's job to divide in judgment. It's God's job to separate who is to be judged and who is not to be judged. And we can get far too excited about judging his people, far too excited about who's good and who's bad, that we then become the judge and the jury and the executioner. And the reality of this is it's God's job. It's his job to determine who is a wheat and who is a tare. So often you and I can't even tell. But for us, What's beautiful about this whole thing is here's the judge, the judge of all judges, and do you realize he's also the one that actually gives us a stay of execution. It's his life that he laid down for you and I. It's the blood of the judge that actually covers us. In a little news newsflash, um, we're all guilty. I hate to tell you, you're all guilty. Me too. But the judge says, my blood is sufficient my grace is sufficient for you you don't need to worry about judgment because you're one of mine and so what are we called to do here as a church as we gather together well, we're actually called to be paramedics not police so often when an accident has happened or an incident takes place we want to get the notepad out and we want to start jotting facts down and we want to begin to investigate and who's wrong and who done it but the reality of it is is we're called to just Go on the scene of the crime and apply pressure. Just stop the bleeding. Just help them where they cannot help themselves to stop before they bleed out. We're called to be paramedics. We're not called to investigate every little nuance. Because the reality is, if we didn't let sinners come to church, we wouldn't have a church. We're all dealing with something. Now, what C.H. Spurgeon says, he says, the outwardly good and the inwardly wicked, we must leave for God to judge. Are there people within church that commit sin that we have to address? Absolutely, there is. When it's public and it's an issue and it causes others to stumble, we must. That is, if we do not, then we are being hypocrites. We are not being truth in love. There are ways to address that. Matthew 18 does a wonderful job of spelling it out. And so as a church, that's precisely how we will take care of things. We are actually called, instead of judges, I like to say we're called to be fruit inspectors. So when we see the fruit's rotten, and it begins to rot other fruit, we are called to identify it and spell it out out of love because we want that person to be better, not just merely to condemn them. But for those that are outwardly good and inwardly wicked, the truth is they're in there. There's no rooting them out lots of times. And some are going to exist all the way till the end of the age. That's not for us to judge. It's not for us to decide. Do you trust God enough that he's going to take care of it? Do you trust him enough that he's going to ultimately be the one that makes the final decision and the final call? Because he is. Now thirdly, and this is important for us to note, we need to judge and examine ourselves. And so if you're in a spot where you're concerned about judgment, or it's something that you're worried about, here's what Paul says. He says, judge yourself so you don't need to be judged. We have a wonderful opportunity in this life, as long as he gives us breath in our lungs, to examine, to be introspective, to look into our own life, and pray, Lord, show me the leaven. Show me where sin exists that I need to purge in my life. And we have a chance to do that. Again, every day you have breath, you have an opportunity to purge out things. And as you examine yourself, and as you pray, God, show me what the next thing is. This is why he is such an awesome God, just one of many reasons. Uh, He will do that in doses that you can handle. He will not unleash everything upon you all at once. He will, in doses that you can handle, give give you this thing, and he will give you this thing, and he will give you this thing. And his plan is always to do this for the purposes of conviction. I put a chart up here so you would understand that there is a difference between condemnation, which is precisely what the enemy wants to do, and conviction, which is what's going to take place when you ask the Holy Spirit to look inside your heart and tell you areas you need to change. For condemnation, it is general. You are condemned wholly and completely. You're going to hell, brother. It's all over for you, Johnny. It deals with the past. The truth of the matter is, none of us can change our past. No matter how much we want to go back and fix it, we cannot. That's why it's so important to remember what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, is that in Christ you are a new creation. It's precisely what we're going to celebrate here in just a few minutes. That we are new creations in Jesus Christ. But condemnation deals with the past. It generates despair. If you've been in a spot of condemnation, it looks like despair, it looks like depression, it looks like I will never get out of this hell hole that I am in. That's precisely how the enemy wants us to feel. And it keeps us in the negative. All the time weighing and pushing us down and telling us we're never good enough and we're never going to amount to anything. And yet if you're brave enough to ask the Holy Spirit to look into your life and convict you of things you need to change, here's what it is. It's specific. That's what I was talking about earlier. He's going to show you things that you can handle. It's going to be baby steps. It'll be my kids with the training wheels. And then it'll slowly be take the training wheels off before he lets you deal with the big boy stuff. He cares about you that much to only give you the pieces you can handle. Even if in the moment you feel like, I can't handle this right now, you can or he wouldn't have given it to you. Secondly, it deals with the future. We just talked about that with the past. You cannot go back and change, but what you can change and what you can affect is how you are from this day forward. This day forward, I'm going to be different. I'm going to live like this, not because of how hard I can work or all the things I can do, but because of Christ living in me, changing me from the inside out. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to be different going forward. He's the only one with enough power to be able to do that. Thirdly, it generates hope. When you're in a moment of despair and condemnation, let me tell you, as a person who's been there a lot in my life, uh, there is no feeling like I'm ever going to have hope again. But with conviction, he's showing you the pathway to hope. And every time he brings you through a season, you grow that much more. From that one season to the next to the next. And it's going to keep you in a positive frame of mind. Again, it might hurt a little bit but it's always for the purpose of keeping you positive and encouraging and to come alongside. Finally, as we look at examining ourselves, rather than examining others first, I'm going to share with you one last proverb. King Solomon knew a thing or two, uh, especially about sin. Uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them, the sins, will have mercy. God is not nearly as interested in the sin as you might think. He is far more concerned about the sinner. He is not shocked. He is not surprised by whatever you have going on in your life. It doesn't catch him off guard. It might catch us off guard, but it never does him. He's always more concerned about the sinner than he ever is the sin. Believe me when I say that. He already died for that thing. He gave his life for that already. That's been dealt with. What he wants now is your heart. That's what he's truly after. And so as we are called to give him our heart, here's what we're specifically called to do. We're called to confess, lay it out there. He already knows it anyway, and then forsake. That's repentance. That's a turning from. Angel does this thing with the kids. This is what repentance looks like. Ready? It's really athletic. Look at that. Just repented, turned away from sin. You see how athletic I am in the swivel stool. That's what repentance looks like. So if you're in here today, and you're looking at your life, and you know that you're a terror and not wheat, here's the beautiful part about that. All you have to do to be wheat is ask. You just have to ask. You just have to confess and forsake, and then what follows is mercy. Not getting what I do deserve. That's the definition of mercy. Not getting what I do deserve. He wants so badly to not give you what you deserve. And so as I look back on my life, I can tell you from personal experience, I have been a terror who sat in church for 35 years. Sunday after Sunday, message after message, I took it in and applied none of it. But through a simple prayer and hands raised and confession and a whole lot of tears, he made me wheat. And do you want to know how you can actually tell the difference between the wheat and the tares at the time of harvest? As the fruit actually comes out, the grain comes out on the head of the wheat, what it does is it gets heavy and then it bows. It bows its head. That's the story Jesus is trying to explain. That for the tares, they stand up proud, defiant. I'll do it my own way. And for those who will not humble themselves in this life, they will be humbled. That's the promise of God. I don't want to see that for anybody, but he is going to judge. Ain't nobody getting away with nothing. That's the reality. But for those who are willing to be changed from the inside out and have real fruit in their life, What does the fruit look like? It looks like love. It looks like love. And when you bite into that, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And so if you find yourself in a spot where you do not have love, let me encourage you, friends. Let me encourage you to ask for it ask him to change your heart today do not wait today is a day of salvation today is a day for new creation today is a day for us to finally be free from whatever is holding us back there's no greater freedom and what we get to witness today here in just a few minutes I'm about done I'll shut up I promise that's an outward sign of an inward change that's two people who have said you know what I want to be free I want to live a life for Jesus who's already inside me. And they get the opportunity to share it with you all. All y'all. They get that opportunity to share with you in an outward example of that. So maybe no more beautiful reminder than this. That if you want to have complete transformation, not restoration, you don't want to be back to that old person you used to be. Transformation. It's right here in the word of God. It's letting him come in and dwell within you and asking him to examine your heart and your life once and for all. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the parable of the wheat and the tares. Lord, it was a hard one this week. (laughs) But the truth is, there are tares among us. But I do believe there are carers who so desire to be weed. They want to be changed. They're afraid of what that might mean. Afraid of what thing they might have to give up. What lifestyle they might have to change. What thing they might have to confess to those they've hurt. But the reality is there is no greater joy than laying it down. And the promise of confession and forsaking is mercy. And boy, Father, after the week that's taken place, there is no group of people I can tell you that needs and wants and desires mercy more than these folks. Father, heap it on us. Bring it. We're excited for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.